Hello. Ever wonder how you could take action on the issues talked about in this podcast? Want to be a more engaged citizen in democracy? Then download our free guide from the Democracy Group on five ways to take action. It's super easy. Just open up your podcast app and click the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the hard questions about how our political institutions are failing us and how we might make them better. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I am a professor of political science at Marquette University. Hey, Julia, I've got a question for you. Yeah? Yeah. So uh, do you know who your state representatives are in over there in Wisconsin? I do. Oh, yeah? I do know who they are. Can you name them? I can. I don't know that I necessarily want to uh, give up my locational privacy. Okay. But you could mm-hmm. if one were to uh, to really push you on that. Okay. Uh, to really push yeah, you on that. Yeah, I'm not going to. Do you know them? How much do you know about them? Quite a bit, yes. So I live in the kind of area where I routinely run into my state senator. Um, he lives pretty close to me, which is why I'm not super keen on blasting exactly who my reps are. But yes, I mean, he's been to my house. He's Not to my house, but he's been to the door and talked to my husband extensively. And so I do know them, um, and I do know a, a fair amount about them. They've both been in office for for several years. I think it's also worth saying, as you're bringing this up, the state legislature is kind of a sore subject in Wisconsin right now. Yeah, so so I've heard. Yeah, so accountability in state legislatures is a is a big thing here. It's a good good topic. Yeah. Well, well, you're pretty unique, Julie. I mean, in so many ways, but particularly in knowing something about your state legislators. So. According to this new book that we're going to discuss today, Accountability in State Legislatures, you would be among the 9% of Americans uh, who know the name of their representatives in the state legislature. So congratulations, you you win uh, podcasting co-hosting responsibilities. Now, does it matter? Is it a problem that most Americans have no idea who their state representatives are and the overwhelming majority of state representatives face no meaningful electoral challenges? Well, here to help us think through this question is Stephen Rogers, who is an associate professor of political science at St. Louis University and the author of an important new book, Accountability in State Legislatures. So welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Hi, Julia. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. So you've written this book, uh, which on its surface seems like a pretty damning account of electoral accountability of individual representatives in state legislatures, though I think there's a fair amount of nuance in your description of this. So let's just start here by laying out some of the basic facts about state legislative elections. Give us the rundown. How many of these elections are meaningfully contested, uh, both at the general level and at the primary level, like how much competition is there for for office in state legislatures? Yeah, Lee, this is a great question. Um, and so it kind of starts us off where the electoral competition starts, whether or not people are actually running for the state legislature. And regrettably, competition is kind of pretty scarce in state legislative elections. So, for example, if we kind of look at that primary election, um, 83% of state legislators who run for re-election do not face a challenger in the primary election. 
And then if we jump to the general election, so kind of looking at more major party challengers, Democrat versus Republican, about 45% of state legislators did not face a challenger in the general election. And then if we take the two statistics and put them together, we find that 35% of state legislators didn't face a challenger in either the primary or the general election. And so with this, another way to think about this is about a third of state legislators win re-election just by signing up. And so here they just have to file for office and then they get to, to keep their seats. And so by comparison, generally about 90% of U.S. House incumbents at least face like a major party challenger. And so this is a pretty big difference in terms of how much competition there is more at that elite level. And so I think it's important that this part of the story is kind of heard um, because it's very easy. Like, so the conversations in today's podcast started off, you asking Julia, um, do you know who your state representative is? And so a lot of times when we think about elections and the lack of accountability or not meeting our standards, we really talk about voters a lot. But here, one argument or theme of accountability in state legislatures, the book, is that it is a story about, say, both elites and voters in which the challengers themselves are contributing to the lack of accountability kind of in these elections. So I, I want to kind of think a little bit about the about the explanations that you offer in the book. One is, okay, so the districts aren't very two-party competitive. That's certainly the case for me. I will I will disclose I live in the city of Milwaukee. So, um, I, you know, I'm two, represented by two Democrats, and I think they both won by more than 60% of the vote in their last election. So, you know, if you're the, and we all know this story, this is a very familiar story with Congress, except sort of without the primary challenges. But if you're, you're the dominant party, you don't have any challenge. And if you're not the dominant party, then there's no point in running. And so that sort of dissuades potential challengers. The other thing which I found was extremely interesting as we think about political ambition and the way that people contemplate the costs and benefits of running for office is that being a state legislator is you know kind of a lousy job. It means part-time in a lot of states. You have to take time away from your career or your, your job, your family. You find that there is a relationship between how far the district is from the state capital. That is a sort of huge uh, convenient factors. You don't get paid very well. You don't get staff help. So it's volunteering for a very thankless job. And, you know, you might as well volunteer locally for some cause you believe in rather than run for the state house. What do you make of that? No, yeah. So I think both of these items that you're bringing up, Julia, are a real part of the story of why there's not many challengers. Um, so first, like just kind of what you, the first point you brought up kind of regarding the districts, like you live in Milwaukee is actually where my sister lives as well. Um, it's like these more heavily Democratic areas. I am like in St. Louis City. It's a heavily Democratic area. And so in this, what we can kind of think is like, OK, there are a lot of districts like my district, for example, is extremely Democratic. And it would not make much sense for a Republican to run in this like St. Louis district or probably your Milwaukee district because they're just probably going to lose in a general election. Um, but one of the themes kind of in the book is that like this has always been the case that, OK, we're not going to run in partisan districts. But one thing that's happened over the last 20, 25 years is that state legislative districts have actually become increasingly partisan. So, for example, we can maybe try to think about how many competitive districts are there. And then here, which is maybe defined competitiveness by whether or not the major party presidential candidates received 45 to 55 percent of the vote in a state house district. And so if we go back to the 2000 election with Gore and Bush, about 25 percent of state house districts were competitive by this definition. In 2012, this drops to about 20 percent. And then in 2022, we're down to 15 percent. 
And so here to kind of stop focusing on the first part of your um, observation, it really is this case where the districts are becoming more partisan. Therefore, major party challengers are like, I'm just going to lose, so I'm not even going to run. And this ties to your second point in terms of, okay, how desirable is this job? And so in some states, for example, like California or maybe New York, you get paid a lot, you get a lot of staff, and then this can be like you have a lot of power and have it be a little bit more of a sexy job. But in states like yours and mine, you don't actually don't get paid all that much. So, for example, I think in Wisconsin and like in your state, Julia, legislators get paid about $55,000 a year. And this is actually pretty good because a state legislator in my home state, for example, gets paid about $37,000 a year. And that's about the national average in terms of state legislators get paid. If we go to a state like New Hampshire, where they have hundreds of state representatives, they only get a few hundred dollars every year. And so this job is a not an easy job. You have to take time off from work, like you said. You brought up this, like, how I do find the further away a state legislator or candidate is from the Capitol, the less likely they are to run. And so they don't want to necessarily have to drive to Madison or, or Jeff City here in Missouri. And then and this is not that desirable of a job. And if they're not getting paid very much as well, pretty much then we're going to have probably state legislators who could be in office be those who are coming from more wealthy backgrounds. So, for example, drawing upon work from Todd Maskey, who really impressively collected all the occupations of state legislators, pretty much about one third of state legislators are lawyers or they're in business in somehow. And so this is also affects the representation that we have, like with this job not being that desirable from a pay standpoint, in terms of people kind of wanting to like, basically, people don't really want to serve in the legislature because they can't really afford to. And so, for example, um, Nick Karn, Melody Crowder-Meyer, David Brockman and Cascaveron did a survey of state legislative candidates and they found that 48% of candidates were worried about losing out on income while they're campaigning. And then 54% of state, potential state legislative candidates were worried about giving up work time. And so I think you're really hitting on some key important points in which it's like, okay, first, these districts are so partisan that it's going to be really hard for a major party challenger to lose. And then second, we're going to have to take a job that doesn't pay very much. It may require some long hours and not being in my hometown. So I'm driving back and forth hours in order to serve the state capital. And so in that, it's not a whole lot of desirability for these people to run. Yeah, I don't want to be a state legislator. Also, I live in Washington, D.C., so we're not actually a state. Uh, although I guess I could serve on this the city government if I wanted to. Uh, but it is kind of a, a difficult and thankless job. So talking about this from the perspective of lawmakers, talking about this from the perspective of voters, there's sort of this lament that I hear a lot. Oh, people don't pay enough attention to state politics. State politics is really important. Why aren't voters more civically engaged in state level politics? Why don't they follow it more? Why don't they, they pay attention more to who their state reps? States are really important. And you you have a line that, that, that I like in this book. You write, a perverse and unorthodox argument of this little book is that voters behave about as rationally and responsibly as we should expect, particularly given the information available to them. Uh, and American voters are not fools, but instead trapped in a complicated 
federal system. So it seems like there's a certain amount of rational voter ignorance here that most voters are rationally concluding that, well, it doesn't really matter whether I pay attention or not, because I'm probably not going to have a choice. And and uh, so I, I, I should just pay attention to the things that I care about, like my family and my job and my my hobbies. Yeah. So uh, this is actually a theme or kind of argument I try to make throughout the book in which like the voter is acting rationally in many ways in terms of the behaviors that I find. And so kind of like as a first step, what I do find is that as you kind of brought up at the beginning of your show, that an overwhelming majority of voters do not know what their state legislator, who their state legislator is, yet only what they're doing from day to day. So only like 11% of voters know who their state legislator is. 75%, at least 75% of voters don't can't identify anything that their state legislator has done. And as you bring up, this may be perfectly rational. And it kind of is. Because one key thing that's kind of like happened, especially in the last, say, 20, 30 years, is that it's becoming much harder to learn anything about your state legislature. And so here, listeners to this podcast may be a little bit more in tune to what's going on in their state legislature or all the activities that go on in Wisconsin. I mean, they've been going on for like 10, 12 years now in terms of like all, like whether it be going from collective bargaining to now more voting rights. Um, There's a lot of activity going on. But if the average voter turns on, like say their nightly news, even their local news, there isn't going to be that much coverage of their state legislature. And then one of the reasons for this is that actually, so Pew Research Center has done some excellent studies on kind of the decline of the state house reporter. And then since the turn of the century, since since 2000, over a third, there's a third fewer state house reporters devoted to covering state government than before. And so then here, there's actually more reporters that are assigned to cover the average Super Bowl than all state governments across the country. And so in that, I'm a football fan. Football started this week. I have four fantasy teams, so I really like football. But in this, it's a little troubling to me that it's hard to kind of search out for this coverage of state legislatures. And so given this like high cost in order to kind of figure out what the heck is my state legislator doing, it is somewhat rational. Say, for example, voters, in order to not necessarily know who their state legislator is, or what their state legislator is doing from day to day. The book is largely pessimistic about accountability in state legislatures. But one theme in the book that I do want to like kind of stress is that the voter does try at times to hold their state legislator accountable. And so here, just kind of give an example of this, so like one analysis that I did that I'm more than happy to talk about later in the show, is that one thing that I did is I looked at how does state legislative approval of a voter relate to their vote choice in a state legislative election? And so under a traditional form of accountability, what we would think is that as voters become more approving of their state legislature, they should then be more likely to vote for the party and control that state legislature, kind of rewarding that party for doing a good job and getting the voters approval. And so this is what I do find. The relationship is relatively weak, But I do find this positive, more optimistic relationship. But here, to kind of illustrate how the voter is trying to hold the state legislator accountable, their state legislators accountable, something that I do is I break up voters in this analysis into voters who could correctly identify which party controlled their state legislature. And then I also break them up into those who incorrectly identified which party controlled their state legislature. 
So for example, what I can do is then look at are voters trying to hold the state legislative party accountable who they believe is in charge? And this is exactly what I find. And which what I do find is that as voters become more approving of the state legislature, they then become more likely to vote for the party that they think is in control of the state legislature. Now, what this results in is amongst those voters who are wrong or those voters who are incorrect, they actually punish the party in power for doing a good job. And so this is hurting the levels of accountability in state legislatures. But to your point, Lee, about how our voters being rational, I do believe that they're trying to be rational. It's just a really hard system for them to be kind of as informed as maybe we would like them to be in order to operate or have elections to serve as these accountability mechanisms that we'd like. Yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like part of this is a collective action problem in which the individual level districts that the way they're designed aren't really designed to solve that problem. And so that accountability is... Um, is lacking. So I want to actually talk about the consequences of this. Like I said, this is a little bit of a sore subject right now in Wisconsin due to a very severe gerrymander uh, after the 2010 election. We have a situation in which is basically I'm talking about accountability, right? There's essentially no way to change the majority in the state legislature in a state that frequently <laughs> changes its, you know, changes its majority a little bit, often kind of lurches from Democrat to Republican and uh, where we have many close elections, the Republicans control um, something like 60 plus, 60 plus percent of the seats in the state legislature, and it's very difficult to change that. Um, and so there's been all kinds of fallout from that and kind of uh, ways in which that kind of a, a legislative majority that's not very vulnerable can consolidate its power. And that's exactly what we've seen. So I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the consequences of all this. In addition to these kind of extreme situations like we have here, state legislatures have a ton of power in terms of policy. I think we really saw this during COVID. All of a sudden, it became clear just how many things don't come out of Washington, D.C. They come out of the state house. What are the the political consequences for this lack of accountability that you observe? So I think there's some pretty severe political consequences. So probably most fundamentally, we may not be getting a lot of policies that we do want because the state legislature may not be fearing being held accountable or especially in Wisconsin. So I think, Julia, like Wisconsin is actually probably one of the worst states in terms of this gerrymandering situation. It and North Carolina a little bit in which it's really hard to start changing these policies. Um, and so, for example, here in Missouri, um, I'm the director of the St. Louis University YouGov poll. And then so it's similar to the Marquette poll you have at Wisconsin, at Marquette, uh, Julia. But here, for example, Missouri was one of the first states because we had like a trigger law. So, for example, when Roe v. Wade was struck down, that abortion would become illegal. But here in the SLU YouGov poll, what we did find is that this isn't actually kind of what voters want. Um, so, for example, in case we asked separately in terms of cases of rape, incest um, and life of mother, would voters be accepting of having abortion policy um, be legal there? And 60 percent of Democrats, independents and Republicans were all in favor of this. However, the Missouri state legislature, for example, doesn't really have to respond to that. And largely because they aren't being held accountable through these elections. 
And so in that, there's really severe policy implications. And so similarly to what is going on in Wisconsin with the gerrymandered districts, I remember actually in the beginning, so shortly after 2010, all the Democratic state legislators actually left the state, right? Then they go down to Illinois to avoid a quorum. Yep, they did that. Yeah. And so in this, for an unpopular collective bargaining law, then the legislate, like the Democrats had to take an ex- more extreme position and leave the state to try to prevent it. Um, and so state legislators are handling issues, whether it be abortion, collective bargaining, or voting rights. Those are all issues that affect Americans' everyday lives. But in my book, what I find is that legislators barely get punished for their roll call behavior. The economy largely does not relate to state legislative election outcomes. And the relationship between, say, state legislative approval and vote choice, while it exists, it's pretty darn weak. And so here, this is scary because like in reality, state legislators aren't getting punished for what they are doing. And probably even more troublesome is that state legislators know that this is the case. So again, going to that survey by David Brockman, Nick Carnes, Melody Crowder, Meyer, and Chris Gavron, where they surveyed state legislators, only 49% of state legislators thought that voters actually knew who controlled the state Senate. So here, state legislators themselves recognize that voters aren't as informed about state politics as we may hope. And probably more troublesome, only 15% of state legislators think voters know who to blame for policies that they do not like. So here, just think about that. 85% of state legislators think that voters don't really know what's going on and or who to blame. And so if you were in a job and you knew you weren't like the person who could like hold you accountable isn't paying attention, what would you do? You'd probably do what you would want and not necessarily what those voters want themselves. I also think there's a kind of a party asymmetry element to this that I want to talk a little bit about. So you have this chart on page 13, and it seems like there's kind of a, a difference between the conservative and liberal districts, which presumably are, you know, map on to partisan partisanship as well. So you plot the ideology of the districts against the ideology of the representatives. It looks like among Democrats, more liberal districts have more liberal representatives and more moderate districts have more moderate representatives. But for Republicans, it looks like there's no relationship. And so Republican legislators are a lot more conservative than their districts. Is that true? And if so, what what do you think accounts for that asymmetry? So here, like, yeah, so uh, what we're looking at in this figure um, is just a, a kind of relationship between district ideology and then legislator ideology. And so here I'm using like the measures from uh, Warshaw and Tizanovich in terms of district ideology and then Borishore and Nolan McCarty in st- terms of state legislator ideology. And then here, just kind of for listeners a little bit, the relationship, at least the Pearson's R correlation uh, between district ideology and legislator ideology is about 0.56 for Democrats. And then the relationship amongst Republicans is a little smaller at 0.40. And so this is consistent with kind of prior findings where some prior findings where it can be like Republicans are a little less responsive than Democrats are. So Geiger and Chris Whitco have some work on this. Aylor and Brockman also kind of find that Democrats more often vote at the with their constituents than Republicans do. And so here, this is kind of consistent with prior findings. I'm going to concede a little bit that I can't give a concrete explanation for why are Democrats necessarily being more responsive, at least in terms of this roll call voting behavior, than Republicans. Uh, one hypothesis actually could be, so I'm working on a paper with uh, Dan Butler and Zomi Neverever, in which we kind of find that actually the agenda may be affecting these measures a little bit. 
in which Republican-led legislatures a little bit maybe putting votes to the Republicans, uh, their Republican members that are actually less popular with their districts than Democratic leadership is. And so these are kind of preliminary results. But what we are doing is we're using um, something called veto referendum. And so what a veto referendum is, is an item or a referendum where voters can veto a bill that the legislature passed. And so here, what this does very uniquely is give us voter preferences on the exact bill that legislators are voting on. And so then with this, what we basically have is like, we find that Republicans are less in line with their constituents' interests, at least as expressed by these veto referendum. And then one reason we find is like, actually, maybe the Republican Party leadership is just kind of putting harder bills for them to consider on the agenda. And so here, this is kind of going into the congressional agenda setting effects, um, items of things. But that could be kind of one reason um, that we're seeing this lack of representativeness. We do find that there's actually asymmetry in polarization in state legislatures. But here, so it's not necessarily consistent with this correlation, but we do find like, so work by Boris Shore and Norrell McCarty that Democrats are actually in state legislatures are becoming a little bit more extreme faster than Republicans are. And so here, this may also explain some differences. And then maybe a third explanation, and it kind of occurs across both parties as well, is that in the book, I actually do find that primaries create kind of un- less desirable incentives for representation. So for example, what I do is I try to examine, okay, let's look at this whole electoral process. And then let's just kind of look at it's like, what is a legislator's incentive? Is a legislator's incentive to represent the median voter in their district or like the more typical average voter? Or do primaries actually create incentives for legislators to provide more extreme behavior? And this is actually what I find across both Democrats and Republicans, in which legislators who are more loyal to their party, so like vote with their party more often, or have more extreme ideologies are more likely to be to win their primary elections and face fewer primary challengers, making that first stage of the electoral process easier. And then I find if we break things down, again, returning this idea of really partisan districts like you have in Wisconsin, if, say, a legislator's in a partisan district, there's actually a greater incentive for that legislator to ex- be extreme because in that, then they're going to be more assured to win their primary election. And because they're in a partisan district, they're almost guaranteed to win their general election once they get there. And so while I can't necessarily say exactly why there's this asymmetry, but a lot of the institutions that we have, whether it be agenda setting or say our primary system, that can really kind of contribute to maybe some more extreme behavior that we don't want. Well, I mean, it just seems like there's not a lot of penalty that (laughs) these lawmakers face for uh, engaging in more extreme legislative behavior because there's not a lot of challenge. So if the Republican Party in the state like, say, Missouri says, we're going to pursue all these policies and voters are just going to keep electing us because they're not going to vote for Democrats, seems like it's kind of a free pass. But I want to question how much we are valuing this idea of that sort of is the kind of thing that you're analyzing here, the legislator level accountability in electoral politics. Because I think we have this intuitive sense, right, that we should have a connection directly with a person who is our person in the legislature. But one seems like most of us have no idea who that person is. 
which is, again, probably rational given how things are. But also, when that person gets to the state capitol, the person probably doesn't have a lot of autonomy given that this is a person who's doing it part time. There's kind of a permanent infrastructure of lawmaker, of, of lobbyists in most state capitals. There's party leaders. Parties are kind of acting as teams. And so in a sense, individual lawmakers are sort of interchangeable cogs in a partisan team at the state level. So one interesting thing that comes out of the, this analysis, and you, you talk about Devin Coey and Chris Warshaw's book, is that like at some level, state policy is kind of where you'd expect it to be in line with the liberalism or conservative states, maybe a little bit to the extreme. But like, you know, blue states have liberal policies. Red states have conservative policies. So maybe things are okay and, and states are more or less getting what they want, or at least voters in the states in, in aggregate are getting what they want because there's a sort of level of, of partisan representation here that, that goes beyond individual level representation. Should So maybe we should be less pessimistic about what's happening in state legislatures? No, yeah. So I think this is an excellent kind of issue to grapple with. And so here, like for listeners, if you have not already, I really strongly encourage going out and reading Devin Colley and Chris Warshaw's book, Dynamic Democracy, because as Lee, like you accurately characterized, they show that there is some responsiveness. And then these liberal states are having liberal policies and conservative states are having conservative policies. And then this is actually sort of this question is something that actually I know Devin, Chris and I have all kind of struggled with a little bit. So we actually were very nicely on an author meets critics panel um, a few weeks ago at a like virtually at APSA. Who was the and author and who was the critic? Oh no, so actually, author? so we we did a joint <laughs> authors meets critics where Devin, Chris, and I, along with Jake Grumbach, were authors. And then here, then we had three critics um, of our books that kind of, because I do think these three books, uh, Dynamic Democracy, Accountability in State Legislatures, and Laboratories Against Democracy, really sing and talk to one another very well. And then here with Devin and Chris's book, they do show like liberal states produce liberal policies, conservative states, conservative policies. But one place where we kind of struggled or like we all struggled with is that here is a question both in Devin and Chris's book and my own book is like, what is the right amount of representation or accountability? So, for example, in Chris and Devin's book, one analysis that they do, which is fantastic, is that they kind of follow uh, Lax and Phillips, the democracy deficit, and they show that policy matched average majority opinion about 59% of the time when you look at 72 policies, policy areas going back from 1936 to 2020. And so 59% is definitely not zero. It is a, even a pretty decent majority. But then this is a question, at least that I struggle with, and I believe others struggle with, is like, but what is the right threshold? Here is 59% enough. And so 59% is clearly better than zero. But this morning, for example, I taught an introduction to American politics class, and 59% in my grade book is an F. 
Now, I'm not saying state legislatures are failing in terms of representation. And I'm not also saying that state legislatures kind of fail in terms of accountability. But it's important here just to kind of for all of us to reflect. And there isn't going to be the right answer. This is a more normative and subjective judgment of like, what is enough? And so I agree that like, yeah, this collective or partisan representation is better than maybe the graph that uh, Julie and I discussed just moments ago. But here, another aspect of Chris and Devin's book that I want to highlight is that the argument of dynamic democracy, and I hopefully I'm not mischaracterizing it, is that policy is responsive to the public opinion, but it can be a pretty slow process. And so then here, what Devin and Chris kind of note in this analysis where they find 59% of policies are matching up is that they say that policy incongruence will increase by about 3% per decade. And so taking this and admittedly kind of putting a more glass half empty spin on it, if it's taking 3% per decade to make policies congruent, and we're at 59% right now, it's going to take over 100 years for policy to become congruent to that full level. And then during that time, probably other policies are going to be created that are incongruent. And so in my book, I don't make a very strong argument about whether or not we have representation in state legislatures. I think there's a lot more that we can do. And then here in this like 3% per decade path, I do bet that if we had a little bit more accountability in state legislatures, we would probably get to better representation a little bit faster. I kind of want to ask about where we go from here, but I also want to throw out there that I understand that the congruence is, is fairly straightforward to measure. And also it definitely matters a lot and is certainly at the heart of many of my complaints about what goes on in Wisconsin. But it's also not the only element of accountability, right? And it seems like, you know, there's this accountability question also encompasses corruption or the policies might be congruent in terms of the their sort of point on the line, but are they actually solving problems and improving people's lives? And I, I want to Ask, but I do want to sort of ask, so you can comment on that if you want, but I also sort of want to ask about whether there's anything to be done, since this is a podcast where we often really uh, emphasize institutional reform. You kind of suggested we could improve legislator pay. We've discussed uh, media coverage. Um, we've talked about primaries. Yet, you know, you have sort of suggested in the book that none of these are going to make a huge difference. Can we talk a little bit about why maybe why the usual suspects of institutional reforms and solutions don't seem very promising? Sure. And so, yeah, so I think both of these are really important subjects. Um, so, Julia, to kind of address or discuss like the first point, that 59% example, what I'm doing is I'm talking about congruence. There's also responsiveness in terms of like how quickly do individuals respond. But even things that you're bringing up like corruption or say even say how effective is a legislator. And so here in the book, what I try to do is I do try to tackle this from multiple sort of angles. And so here I do find, for example, like we have congruence in policymaking, but I also find very limited evidence that voters respond to, for example, economic conditions. So if the state is doing better economically, I don't really find a relationship between, say, growth in the economy and then how voters are voting in state legislative elections or who, which party is winning seats in state legislative elections. Another thing that I try to do is I look at this concept called legislator effectiveness. And so Craig Bolden and Alan Wiseman have really kind of brought this forefront in the congressional literature, and they're bringing it to the state legislative literature as well. And then here I kind of offer two analyses on this front. One analysis is very fortunately that, well, there used to be 
um, a center in North Carolina in which they surveyed politicos and media reporters to kind of say, which legislators are the most effective? And then they rank these individuals. And so here we can think about legislators do more than just vote on bills. They write the bills. They do constituency service. They, you know, try to shepherd bills through committees. But here I found very limited evidence that like in North Carolina with these rankings of experts in terms of effectiveness of much of a relationship between, say, how effective a legislator was and um, their election outcomes. And then using scores developed by Craig Volden and Alan Wiseman on the state legislative level, which are more comparable to their congressional effectiveness scores, which also look at like, okay, how well does like a legislator's bills kind of get through the legislative process? Again, I find extraordinarily meager evidence that legislators who are effective at getting um, a bill through the process are rewarded. Now, in the book, I do not explicitly look at corruption, like at least in a statistical analysis. And there are many examples of legislators who may have like done something corrupt and then been voted out of office or then left office because of it. My book does not argue there's no accountability on that front. But here, at least I think it's a little bit more anecdotal than consistently and regular. Representation or even congruence is not the only way to evaluate how good our legislatures are. And I think that's kind of the struggle that Chris, Devin, and I overall have is like, what is enough or what is the right metric? And so then on your second point, there are ways that we can kind of make things a little bit better, but at least my statistical analyses, which are like, they test many things, whether it be salaries or campaign finance rules or even primary rules, but nothing really, there's not that can be that magic fix on a more simple level. So for example, returning to the topic that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, where we're talking about competition in state legislatures. And in here, we talked about how state legislators in Missouri are only getting paid $37,000. State legislators in Wisconsin are only getting paid $55,000. And so here, we could raise all state legislator salaries to the highest like they are in California. We also talked about how state legislators have to go spend time at the legislature. And so here, I do find generally that if the length of the state legislative session is shorter, we'll get more challengers. And another finding that I have is that campaigns are really expensive. And so there's some states like Maine that have like publicly financed campaigns. And then here, I do find that if we have publicly financed campaigns, more challengers will run. But if I were to like hypothetically have every state have the highest salary, every state have the lowest number of days in session, and in every state have publicly financed campaigns, we would still fall well short of the amount of competition in state legislatures that we then do see in the House. Now, this is not the set, like this is a hypothetical where I'm just kind of projecting my statistical analysis to create like a counterfactual. And it's not like the House has a ton of competition either. I mean, there are there are more competitive elections in the House, but most of them are pretty lopsided for one party or the other. Well, you're exactly right. Like, I'm just hoping to get a warm body on the ballot. Like that was like, that's the threshold that I'm setting, just trying to get these challengers. And in here, if we kind of talk about the partisanship of districts, the only real way, say, to like there's actually not really a real way to make the districts competitive enough. Even when we kind of made the districts like say 20 more percent against the incumbent's party, then people would start running, but then that incumbent would not be running in that district. And so then here there's many layers to it, but just like on, on this front, like kind of with the salary or length of session or these public finance campaigns, I don't think that these will make incremental progress, which can be good. 
but we're not going to kind of get to those higher levels. And then another problem that we kind of talked about a little bit earlier is that there isn't that much media coverage of state legislatures. And so then here again, like there's one third fewer state house reporters than there were at the turn of the century. But in this, if we were to triple the number of state house reporters that we have right now, which is not going to happen anytime soon because we're losing state house reporters over time. My prediction, like the statistical analysis would predict that we still, voters would still not be as knowledgeable, at least in terms of which party controls the state house, as they know in terms of which party controls the U.S. house. So another solution is add media, but can we add enough media coverage and break through all the nationalized kind of coverage of politics that we see every day. Because here, this is, I think, an overarching problem, or not going to say problem, I'll say obstacle for accountability, is that we are largely in a very nationalized political system. And so then here, Dan Hopkins, I think, very lays this out quite well in his book, Increasingly United States, in which like basically our state politics have become extremely more nationalized. And so when we're kind of thinking about this, if you're just turning on the TV or opening the newspaper, what you're going to be reading about is national politics. And so this may raise sort of the questions a little bit in terms of federalism in general, in which are we going to have these different layers of government? But when Madison and Hamilton were kind of designing this federalist system, they had no idea that like right now that individuals in Washington, D.C., Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and St. Louis, Missouri would be talking on a podcast over the internet to kind of discuss these issues of democracy. And so here, in terms of like we would like to kind of have basically more attention to a pay our state legislatures, I don't really see this happening just because of how nationalized our politics are. Well, that's a challenge. Uh, so one possibility is to say, well, look, you know, our politics are just nationalized. So like, let's just accept that. And we state legislatures should have less power because people have no idea what's going on in their state legislatures and there's so little accountability. And at least at the national level, people are paying more attention and there's more accountability. Or we should say, well, actually, states are pretty important and states have a lot of responsibilities and should have a lot of responsibilities. And you know, many U.S. states are, are larger population wise than many European countries and countries around the world. Like people pay so much attention to, to politics in Israel, but Israel would be a, a modestly sized U.S. state if it were one of the if it were in the in the U.S. But I think one thing is if we're going to do that, we just have to do something very different about how states run their governments. So uh, my on brand proposal here is, well, like maybe we just give up the idea that we're going to have this individual level district accountability at state legislatures and just have like a, a a, you know, list proportional system for states with parties because people have some understanding of, of what parties are and what parties do and can hold parties accountable. And maybe the parties at individual state levels should be different from the national parties so people can look at state politics through a different lens. I mean, obviously, that would be a very difficult thing to uh, get past in most states. But it seems like either we have to give up this idea that there's going to be some level of individual legislator accountability in state government, 
or we have to do something radically different about how we do elections at the state level if we want there to be any sense of voters having a meaningful say and engagement at state level democracy. Yeah, Lee, I think that's a very like interesting and possible proposal, at least to solve some of the obstacles that I identify. I'm with you in terms of one of the things that I do think we do need to do. So you brought up that quote, we're trapped in a complicated federal system. And so turning to a system of just more parties kind of is going to simplify things to some degree. I don't need to know who Joe Republican necessarily is. I just need to know if they're a Republican. But here, and I would be really interested in both, uh, Julian, your thoughts on this a little bit more, because I do think we do need to try to think a solution. We do need to think maybe think outside at least the American box right now. But here, like just like as you've thought about this subject much more in depth than I have, do you have any sort of concern that, okay, so here, if we go to a party-based list system in which with these lists, that's going to solve the challenger problem because we have a list of candidates that would fill all these seats. But here, if we go back like to what Duverger's law in which it's like, well, will that create more parties? Well, it will if you have larger districts or statewide proportional representation, right? I mean, if you do it within the single member district, it's not going to solve the problem, but you'd have larger multi-member districts like most most list PR systems have. And then, you know, you'd, you'd have an election for the governor, sure. Probably a two, you'd want to have a two round system like most con- most presidential PR systems do. And then you just have parties that would run and they would form coalition governments, probably have some sort of pre-electoral coalition with particular gubernatorial candidates, uh, as happens in PR presidential countries. But it would give every voter a chance to cast a consequential vote. And it would take away this idea that voters are somehow going to have this direct connection with a legislator who never, who rarely faces opposition. And, uh, you know, maybe it would make state politics different from national politics because you'd have different coalitions and people could focus a little more on state politics as something separate rather than just this weird and unproductive and, according to, to Jake's book, very dangerous extension of national politics. So I think there could be a lot of opportunity with such a proposal. I think just like if I was playing devil's advocate and the little flag in my head is that right now it's hard for me to have a voter explain to what the differences are between, say, the parties we have right now. Um, so, for example, voters, I like in a certain the survey I did, can identify to Democrats or to the left of Republicans, but they struggle to identify is their Democratic Party to the left or right of the National Democratic Party. <laughs> if you had a progressive Democratic Party and moderate Democratic Party that were running separately, um, voters would know. I mean, I mean, it is a challenge because the National Democratic Party does contain multitudes and the National Republican Party does contain multitudes and voters don't really have a sense of of how to select the shade with within uh you know, they, they vote blue, not light blue or dark blue. No, and it'd be great. Like, so if this like multi-party system had dark blue, blue, light blue, like that's how the party separated, that would probably really simplify it. That would probably be pretty great. I just like probably the little concern in my head is like if there's the Freedom Party or the Labor Party or something to kind of use other, would voters be able to 
identify, okay, they have the Democratic Republicans at the national level. And then in Missouri or Wisconsin, I have the freedom, the conservative, the Republican, the liberal, the Democrat parties sort of thing. They very well may be able to do that. I mean, it's what happens in Europe, right? I mean, there are people vote for EU parties that are somewhat separate, not always the same as the parties they vote for in their domestic elections. Yeah. Like I just, that's probably just the first pause that I I do want to simplify things. So for example, one thing I kind of suggest in the book is that even maybe get rid of bicameralism in state legislatures. Nebraska for, for, for the, for the entire country. Right. So, cause instead of like, oh, well, cause in Missouri, for example, like the Missouri state Senate clogs up a lot more things than the Missouri House, you know, sort of thing. And the Missouri Senate, for example, there's the extreme right Republicans and there's the right Republicans and then the few Democrats that are there. And so it's a kind of this inner party battle. Um, and so then here, it's just like, well, if we just kind of simplify things a little bit, the voter then only needs to know, okay, Republicans control the state house, Republicans con- or Democrat, then Democrats control the governorship, which isn't the case in Missouri, but it is the case in Wisconsin. That could simplify things a little bit. What kind of comes out of your conversation about multi-parties and proportional representation and everything else is that we're at sort of the intersection of an institutional problem and a sort of civics problem. On the one hand, we've got the kind of waning local media, which we've been talking about as, uh, or statehouse reporters in this case, we've been kind of talking about that as, it's just sort of like a force of nature, but in fact, it's, you know, it's a series of of choices. Um, Similarly with voters, not, being aware or paying attention in the example we kind of started with. So we have this, on the one hand, the sort of civics problem, and then on the other hand, many different institutional incentives that we all as political scientists are trained to think about all the time that lead state legislators to behave in in particular ways and have shaped their political behavior. And I think those things are interesting. I think that's an important kind of place to leave the conversation. I also think one kind of set of questions we can ask sort of gets into as Lee starts talking about thinking about, you know, comparative context and how U.S. states sort of function as political units is the awkwardness of the state as a political unit. Um, and, And the fact that the state as a political unit has a sort of special constitutional status and yet is kind of too small from like relative to the national level, there aren't a lot of resources to do things. Um, And yet, you know, relative to a municipal level, you're not really close enough to actually reflect maybe what a political unit wants to do. It seems like a lot of the subtext here too is about how do we do this together? You know, how do the Republicans and Democrats in a particular state come together? And maybe this is different across different states, but it seems like part of the problem is there's no institution to reconcile rural and urban interests as those become increasingly, you know, those differences become increasingly mapped onto other kinds of policy disagreements. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking I'm coming away with a very politics in question kind of vibe where I'm thinking, well, why, why states? Uh, Maybe we need to redistribute power across different different levels. I love it. I, I've thought this a long time. I think I kicked off one of our first episodes by saying we need to have Senate representation for cities. You can tell I live in a city in a, you know, in a state where there's a really stark urban rural divide, but it's, it helps me really think through a lot of different questions. I think laying out the civics and the institutional problems of state legislatures really allows us to think through a lot of kind of 
political science-y angles to what's going on in our politics today. So I thank you, Steve Rogers, for joining us and for your excellent book, which we highly recommend. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.